Crystal here. Welcome back for another episode of Pedaling Forward. In this episode, I got the privilege to interview Abby, who is the Sustainable Transportation Coordinator at the University of Vermont. This was a really cool discussion that we had. We talked a lot about ways that UVM can decrease carbon emissions starting from the transportation sector in Vermont, and just as the university as well, and some other sustainable transportation topics like how to properly lock your bike. So definitely tune in. I love this episode. I love talking with Abby. And here we go. So, Abby, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? So, my name is Abby Balding. I am the Sustainable Transportation Coordinator for the University of Vermont. I've been in this role for about three years now, and previous to that was working at the Transportation Research Center, um, running the state's Vermont Clean Cities program which, despite the name, is really focused on how Vermont tackles greening the fleet. So primarily focused on businesses with large fleets, but really municipal fleets, you know, any business owning fleets. And before that, for about five years, um, worked on Safe Access School programs, which are um, programs designed to provide technical assistance to schools to make it easier for kids to walk and bike to school. So Everything from tackling infrastructure challenges to encouragement programs to working on enforcement and education as well. So the current role that I am in is really um, designed around reducing the number of people that drive to campus and drive around campus. And this role currently is housed in transportation and parking services. My role in the department is sort of looking at all of our offerings and programs and making sure we're prioritizing non-single occupancy vehicle modes over over driving alone. So a little bit about my background is I studied as an undergrad environmental science and environmental policy or political science, I should say, in environmental science and um, took that sort of undergraduate degree and started working in green building and became like a lead accredited professional. But quickly realized um, as I was like certifying these green buildings at the time in like the suburbs of Atlanta, it didn't seem very green to me that you could um, be in a really cul-de-sac-y suburban sprawl situation and then have like a lead platinum building, you know. Lead has progressed today to now I think account for more of the siting of the building, but back then you can have them in like a terribly trafficked location. So I ended up going to grad school to study urban design, urban policy planning to really start to tackle the issue of how we develop and where we develop and what that means to the behaviors of people that live and work in those communities. After that degree, I've really been focused on uh, transportation specifically and, and, and sustainability around transportation. Cool. That's so funny. I'm also an ENVS major and I have a green building and community design minor. And over the summer, I was going to get my LEED certification. But now I'm also like looking at, well, if these buildings are so isolated, then what's really the impact if everyone's like transporting there, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a good thought process. And um, I don't do like I get my planning certification and that's like my focus has been on uh, maintaining that certification. So I sort of fell off on what LEED is today. But I was under the impression that you had to include like where the building was located and the transportation factors to be able to get the higher levels of lead. Is that not true? I'm honestly not sure. I was literally going to do it over the summer. I can let you know. Yeah. My hope is that they've evolved since their yeah. original intention of just looking at the building. Yeah. Yeah. I would totally let you know about that. Um, 
But kind of just to go into the next question, thanks for the background information about you and your role at the Transportation Parking Services. Kind of a big question to start with. UVM's uh, action climate plan includes being 100% carbon neutral in commuting business and air travel by 2025. Are we going to succeed in this goal by that time period? So I think the short answer is no. <laughs> There's a the climate action plan is, from what I understand, is currently being reassessed to have a more realistic goal and, and action steps to to get to that goal. I think the reality of transportation today is that most of our transportation is still fueled by fossil fuel and combustibles. Um, so until we have a cleaner system to use. Being 100% carbon neutral is going to be really difficult, even if you try to buy a ton of offsets for the emissions. There's definitely progress to be made every year that UVM can undertake, but I think 100% by 2025 is probably not going to happen. Gotcha. What will the divestment process look like for parking and transportation services? I think it's by, what, year 2023, like completely divested from fossil fuels. What does that mean for your role? Yes, that's a great question because um, my understanding of the di- divestment was the um, financial divestment from fossil fuel companies. There has been nobody that's approached our department about divestment within operations. So this is the first that I'm hearing that it could potentially include operations, but that's an even shorter timeline than the climate action plan. Can you like elaborate a little bit on that? I don't really understand how those two differ. When I say financial divestment, like we have these like retirement plans and assets that the university owns that invests in stocks that are complete with um, fossil fuel companies. That was my understanding. Like we have these retirement plans and the university has a bunch of assets in the stock market, right? And that they were going to divest from those assets that were associated with fossil fuel companies and industries. That's my understanding of the divestment. Okay. Maybe that's unrealistic of me, but when I heard the word divestment, I was like, oh, that's what it means. But yeah, the divestment that I understand is UVM is becoming financially divested from the stock market entities associated with fossil fuels. Thank you for that. I did not know that. I will definitely look into that now that I'm invested in it. So kind of to go back to the other question, what kind of steps can we make to move forward in reaching 100% carbon neutrality in transportation services, maybe not by 2025, since that doesn't seem realistic anymore, but just in general. So I would say COVID is actually the bright side of COVID is it has really showcased how we can, we don't have to be in the same room to communicate, to have conferences, to hear speakers. I think that alone will decrease. Transportation has, of course, but I think we'll continue to decrease the need to fly places, you know, drive places. Even some of the driving around campus that happens for meetings, I think now could be like greatly reduced with these virtual platforms like Teams. So I think one big way to get there is just to reduce the need for transportation, which I think a virtual platform allows. Secondly, it would be by investing in, well, actually it's a couple of things. So the green fleet effort that I'm working on does three things. It looks at what vehicles do we have that we currently don't need? Can we downsize the overall size of the fleet and get more people walking or biking or busing to do their job? And then of the vehicles in our fleet, are they um, oversized? Like, are we all driving pickup trucks to meetings? You know, do we need to have these really large vans? Can most of the, the tools be carried maybe by a smaller span? or an electric bike, 
So the third part of that is like, once we figure out the appropriate size, overall size of the fleet and the appropriate size of the vehicles, what vehicles can we electrify, right? We have a couple alternative fuel options, but the only real good one that will get us towards carbon neutrality is is electric. And I say that having really looked closely at biodiesel and biofuels, um, and they're just not there for our whole climate to be like a really great substitute. But electric vehicles are. But so far, the class of electric vehicles um, that's available in the market today is really light duty. So we don't even have a pickup that's electrified yet. We don't have a 12-passenger van, which the university owns a bunch of. Those two vehicles are the are the most used in our fleet. So anyway, smaller fleet, more efficient vehicles, electrifying where you can. For flying, for the near term, it's really precious in offsets, right? Because that industry is terribly fluid, and they don't have, I haven't heard any movement of them moving forward with their fuels. But so I, I will add with Buttigieg, the new secretary of transportation, he is investing in rail. And I feel like rail is like this forgotten piece that can really contribute to reduce climate impacts because it provides that long distance transportation option outside of what's really available today for most people, which is flying or driving in that same vein. The more people we move towards shared situations, the better. So in a perfect world, right, this isn't going to be by 2025, but in a perfect world, we would have really great public transportation that would run off of really great alternative fuels. And then we would have great bikeways, dedicated pathways to make it really easy and desirable for people to be on bike. So walking, they say most people will walk a quarter to a mile to a destination, but biking then opens up like more towards like the zero to five mile for a typical person that opens up a lot more. And then busing, you can be busing your train really expands it. So on campus, we're, we're tackling the fleet. Um, but I think when later in the conversation, we'll talk about what we're really doing to um, try to reduce the number of commuters that are coming to campus by car. With the green fleet that you were talking about, your project, would those electric vehicles be powered by renewable and ethical energy or would it be powered by fossil fuels, but just electricity wise? Yeah, good question. So um, UVM is situated in Burlington and Burlington is 100 percent renewably power. Their energy comes from 100% renewable resources. So while in some cases, like in the South, um, you can plug in and feel good about your electric vehicle, but your actual pollution is like coming from the coal plants and the pollution created by the coal plants. Vermont doesn't have any coal plants, which is a good news statewide, but um, Burlington is the only municipality in the state that is 100% renewable. Okay, cool. That sounds good. You're just saying like how to encourage more people to use mass transit. How do you think we can like stigmatize taking the bus or, you know, anything like that over like driving or walking? Because I feel like mass transit has such a stigma to it. Like what ways do you think we could reduce that? So I definitely felt um, that when I lived in Atlanta, there was like a such a stigma with buses and subways that they replicated what was underground above ground into light rail to get to reach more people, which I thought was an insane waste of money, right? But like that, (laughs) but that light rail didn't have the stigma of the subway, you know, and I don't find that stigma as much up here 
in Vermont. I think that the larger challenge when it comes to getting people to um, ride the bus is really the understanding of frequency, how to ride it, um, where it takes you. If they were to do one thing to improve ridership, I, I really think it's improving frequency. Like they should have 15 minute headways at all of the lines. So you don't have to be like an expert bus rider to be to know how to catch the bus. You just know any bus stop that you're at in 15 minutes, the bus will be there to pick you up. Um, and then to improve the signage at those stops so that people understand what buses pick you up and where they go. Because we have a super simplistic bus system in the sense where like almost every stop is just one bus being served. It's not like you have four buses coming by and you have to figure out like which one to take and where it's going. So that's that's my impression that it's less stigma as much as it is like on level of service and understanding of using that service. Well, yeah, we have an intern at SGBT who also interns with uh, Green Mountain Transit and she, for her project, looked at the bus stops and what the time schedules were and like almost none of them were accurate. So she's like, okay, this is a problem. So I think that's really important that you brought up. Thank you for that. I ask this to everyone I talk to. Do you think electric vehicles are the way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in Vermont since 45% of our emissions come from transportation? Do you think like that's the way or it's part of the way? I think it's an important piece of the puzzle, but I don't think electric vehicles get us to where we need to be completely on their own. I think um, shifting in behavior is far more more important than the electrification of vehicles in the sense where um, if we can get people who can walk or bike to walk or bike to do that, then that's great. If there are people that don't have access to alternatives, walking, biking, busing, training, let's get those guys in the electric vehicles and then hopefully get more than one of them to ride together. So like, let's look at the carpooling. So I think... Overall, like the American way is to drive everywhere. I mean, most of this country is literally built for you to drive like across the street. So we have to look at land use planning. We have to look at densifying. We have to make sure that our jobs are located where people are living first and foremost to reduce that sort of long distance commute that a lot, that a lot of people are currently taking to get to their job or to get to any amenities. Then with the remaining vehicles, the people that have to drive, um, whether it's for business or personal reasons, that's when we look at electrification of the fleet to be able to actually move us away from fossil fuels. And like you mentioned earlier, that it has to happen at the same time as like greening our grid, making sure the power plants that are providing the electrons are actually coming from renewable sources. Yeah, for sure. Do you think, because you have a background in urban design and you're saying like the American ways to drive. And I totally agree with that. I think this country was built for cars rather than for people. What ways do you think UVM or just the Burlington community, I guess, can improve upon making like a walkable and bikeable habitat? Like, do you see anything with your education that you're like, oh, Burlington can definitely do this to make it more walkable? Yeah, I think that having uh, minimum sidewalk standards be uh, more generous than they are. So we have four and five foot sidewalks in some places in the city. I think an eight foot standard with a 15 foot minimum if bikes are going to be included on it would really help create an environment that seems a little bit more friendly for bikes and pedestrians. And then just as par for the course, we should have a, a separated bike network. So separated in the sense where there's protected facilities that they follow the same roadways like bikes so that bicyclists don't have to go out of the way. But just to have a, a safe, um, separated facility for bicyclists so that they feel like they are equally um, able to be on the roadway and that the roadways aren't prioritizing cars. When I talk to classes, I'm always like showing this like free car, what the streets look like. 
right? And it was like horses and people and bikes and trolleys all sharing space in the roadway, right? So it looks a little bit like frenetic and disorganized, but I mean, it's, it goes back to like roadways are public spaces owned by the people. And just over time, how it's become like roadways owned by vehicles. That's how people feel about it. So when a bike gets in a roadway, you know, the car feels entitled and they put the biker at risk. Like, how do we move back towards that um, roadways of public space? In the sense that it's always been that way, but the, op- the impression that people have isn't that way. First thing is making sure we have proper infrastructure. And then the second thing, again, is really building interesting streets and dense streets. So making sure buildings come up to the sidewalk, you know, that the first floor, if they're multi-use buildings, the first floor has glazing. So people have something interesting to look at inside. Make sure there's a mixture of uses so that people live and work near other amenities. So both densifying, designing, and then creating infrastructure, I think is important. That's an awesome answer. That class I was talking about earlier, we just read something somewhere in Germany. I can't remember the name of the town where they got rid of all their like stop lights and stop signs and all that. So before there were like so many fatalities because the cars ruled the road, like the bikers didn't have their proper bike lanes, the walkers, like they'd get hit when crossing the road. But now because they got rid of all that extra, you know, fluff, they've had less fatalities. I don't know if you've heard about that. It's just cool. Yeah, we are the opposite because we're such a litigation prone country that everything is to reduce liability. But I have seen that. And I've also like a newer planning technique is called these plaza streets or festival streets. I don't know if you've heard that, but it's pretty much eliminating the curb. So like the, the sidewalk and the road are flush with one another so that it does create a little bit more um, confusion of the place of things because of course, like the more defined the street is, the wider it is, the further the buildings are set back, that's the more, the faster the cars go on the road, like the more cars that choose that route. Mm-hmm. So visually, you can design places and actually really affect car behavior. Cool. Yeah. I think it also makes drivers like more mindful of where they're driving and how to increase safety for them, but also for other people too. But that's awesome. I definitely have to look into that. How can UVM encourage students, faculty, staff, pretty much anyone affiliated with the university to participate more in transportation alternatives rather than commuting like you were talking about? So I think one is to be able to provide a a more robust transit service. So like I said, having more predictability in the busing. And then we're such a rural state, right? But we have parking rides all over the place. So having greater connection between our parking rides and the university so that even if you live far out, you could like park you know, somewhere along along your route and then be able to access our campus without being in a car, I think is, is an important piece of the picture. We have the free bus pass, you know, about we have reduced class car share memberships. And that really for us is both hopefully encouraging students not to bring their cars, but also if employees come to campus without a car and need a car to access a, a doctor's appointment or something that that's available to them. We're trying to take out the excuses of why one would have a car on campus. And that's definitely one reason, maybe not an excuse or reason, somebody might drive to campus to be able to run errands during the day. We have the discounted green red bike share, which is actually going to upgrade next um, in May to an electric bike share. So that's another sort of helpful resource to get people places faster on the e-bike and hopefully decrease some of the concern about being on, on the top of a hill, really, for those that, that don't want to bike up. So other ways we can encourage, I mean, definitely cost is the most effective TDM lever, transportation demand management lever. People make decisions based 
mostly based on cost. So having appropriately priced parking and having parking be a daily cost versus like a semester long cost. So you know the sunk cost theory? It's like if, if you pay for it, if you have a flat cost, like you want to make the most use of that cost. So if you pay for a gym membership and you have a year, like you want to go as much as possible because every time you go, that gym membership theoretically costs less to you, right? Same with parking, right? You pay for parking a semester, you know, say your employee. You're like, oh, every time I drive, that parking pass actually costs less to me than if I have it and I don't drive a lot. So by moving to a daily parking system, we're actually encouraging people not to drive because you're only paying for what you use. So that's another really effective mechanism. I know you mentioned just a little bit the permanent exchange program. Do you know why that was canceled this semester? The folks who put together that grant application didn't actually go through the proper UVM channels. It was really because of the way it was processed. It wasn't processed appropriately in the UVM system for UVM to then be able to accept the award money. Okay, got it. Yeah. I feel like that's so important, like that permanent exchange program. Why isn't it, like, do people have to propose it every year or something like that? I don't really know much about it. So, like, why isn't it already a part of UVM? Like, why do people have to propose it rather than it just be an incentive already? Yeah, so there's a couple things. One is that TPS, Transportation Parking Services, is funded not by general funds, but by um, parking revenue. Oh, okay. So it's this really poor funding model that we actually need people to park to be able to fund our TDM programs, our transportation demand management programs, which is my work, it's sustainable transportation. Until there's a better funding revenue, if I'm successful at my job, we receive less revenue to be able to run programs, right? There's a bad funding model in place. There's not money to pay people not to park in campus, but also best practices within the field. You use something like a parking um, cash out program to quantify the benefit that you're giving to your employers that don't pay for parking. So classically, these um, incentive programs aren't paired with paid parking. So say you work at Ben and Jerry's and you could park for free. You can go there and park for free. That means your employer is covering the cost of the park, creating the parking lot, maintaining the parking lot, lighting the parking lot, plowing the parking lot, right? That as an employee to you is a benefit. That benefit is not received by somebody who's biking or walking or busing to um, work. So there's an inequity there. So cashing buyout programs are to reduce the inequity. It's saying, okay, um, we have a hundred people in our organization and 50 are, are getting a benefit because they're driving. We're paying this X number of um, dollars a year for that parking lot divided by 50 is this number. That number we owe the people who aren't driving. We owe that number to the people. So if it's like 50 bucks a month, they actually, to equalize that benefit, are paying the people who are not driving there the $50. So since we have paid parking at the university, it's not actually best practice. If we're charging people the cost of parking, the true cost of parking, it doesn't make sense to have um, the, the cash out on top of that. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Like your job is to reduce the number of people commuting to school or their job, whatever. And then obviously there's less money coming in from that. How do you still fund sustainable transportation when you're doing your job right, but you're losing money, you know? 
That's the million dollar question. <laughs> and so there's a couple things that make sustainable transportation still really important to the university, despite the fact that it's actually reducing revenue for the department. And that's because we have 5,000 parking spots for about 16,000 people that come on the hill. We need TDM to be able to effectively use our infrastructure and for the university not to then have to buy or build more parking, which is just like exorbitantly more expensive than having like a sustainable transportation coordinator or paying GMT for the rides that our students take, right? And, and, and employees. So, um, but in the long term, it is an unsustainable model. UVM has to embrace a different, a different model to be able to continue to be successful in this area. It has to rely on something other than parking revenue. Unless parking revenue goes up enough that the 5,000 spaces are like X number of dollars because that's our budget, including TEM, which I think they would have to go up quite a bit to be able to have that be sustainable going forward. Another interesting thing for you to know is that since we are kind of underpricing parking at this point, the way we're able to balance budget is because the medical center um, leases parking on our campus for like five times more than what our people pay for it. So they're like covering the gap in the budget. But as there's more pressure on UVM to provide more parking, that we have to take away that lease parking from the hospital, right? So there's another budget like downfall quite a bit, the, the more we have to take back from them for our people. So like I said, it's an unsustainable model. There's a lot of different levers that keep it floating at the moment, but I think in long term, they'll have to find a different source of revenue. Do you have a recommendation for that? different source of revenue or not sure? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it probably has to be general funded. You know, come from the general fund. It can't rely only on parking fees and enforcement and um, the medical center. The other thing I was going to mention that helps keep this work happening on the university is that the city has an agreement with the university to make sure our parking is managed. And if we don't meet that agreement, then we can't build on campus. And UVM is continually building on campus. It's not something that can just like go away. You know, it can't be like, oh, this is costing us to do TDM. Like, let's just let people drive and not waste money on bus passes or on car share, bike share. Mm -hmm. um, that can't happen because we won't be able to continue to get permitting to build on campus. So it's also another good thing to like make sure that this work continues even as revenues decrease. That is interesting. Where do you think the, like, if sustainable transportation would be funded by general funds, where do you think the cuts would be from? So I don't have a, I don't have a great, great answer for that, right? Like money has to come from somewhere. Yeah. Where does it come from? We're trying not to increase tuition. We're trying not to increase fees on employees. Really, I think the best um, we can hope for in the near future is just right sizing the price of the permit. So making sure the permit costs are equivalent to peer institutions to be able to at least make the revenue that's coming in for parking match the, cost, the actual cost of parking so that we're not going in the red for parking and then also TDM if we can be in the green for parking in the, in the red for TDM. And then um, I'm sure there'll be efficiencies in the future about how to run operations, but it's a pretty tight ship at this point. We're not a huge department. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't know how complicated it was. Would that day-to-day -day parking for the parking permits apply to students as well? It would apply to commuter students, right? Yeah. It's hard It's hard to charge um, on like, residential students because they're like, it's their house, but right. it would be for commuter students, yeah. Okay, that's good to know. I was just about to say, I feel like that could cause a lot of accessibility issues, but that is good to know. 
I know we were talking about parking spaces. Do you think that reducing the number of parking spots on campus instead of expanding? And honestly, I've experienced a lot of difficulty finding parking on campus, even with all these spots. So I would kind of assume they're overselling parking permits. I don't know if that's right. Like reducing parking and parking spots, like you were saying, is a way to deter students from bringing cars to school. And like, could we possibly turn those parking areas into green spaces for more students? Like, what do you think about that? So I think our campus master plan actually has us building. Our, most of our parking on campus is actually considered land banks. So most of the development that's going to happen uh, um, on our campus that's happening today and into the future is on these parking lots. And so the campus master plan envisions like very, almost no um, parking on Central Hill campus and really the parking to be on the periphery of campus. Mm-hmm. In terms of the overselling, what I hear from the parking side of the operation is that the, that the permits are not oversold. It's just people aren't willing to park in like the further reaches of their zones. Okay. So those tend to have spaces. But I know there was some there was some concern because um, so many more students were driving because of COVID. Right, the first year exemption got waived and everything. Um, but everybody's trying to be like pretty close to where their destination is and further afield in those zones, there's available parking. I don't think it, um, taking away parking, since we have, like I said, 5,000 spaces for 16,000 people and then diminishing, you know, as we build on it, it's already happening. We're like decreasing parking, but I don't necessarily think that's doing anything other than pushing parking into peripheral locations. So for example, we had to get um, a parking lot on Pine Street to deal with the demand, the over demand of that, you know, us building on campus. So it's sort of like pushing it away. What I do think may change people's habits is if you make parking inconvenient, you know, they may think like if, oh, I have to park on Pine Street, maybe it's not even worth me bringing a car on campus. But turning all of our parking lots into green space is not something that's going to ever happen. But, you know, we all envision like maybe... It's better to build, when you're talking about parking, it's better to build up than build out. So like structured parking instead of surface parking. Structured parking is like 12 times the cost of surface parking. It's very expensive, but it's such a better, denser use of our landscape, especially our limited campus space. And what's envisioned in the master plan is sort of moving parking to the periphery, building up, having green roofs, like having a system that um, connects your parking back with your shuttle buses, with your bike share, with your car share and kind of creating like more of a transportation hub than this like spread out parking situation we have on campus now, which I think is the gold standard at this point until people can really tackle eliminating driving that's ever in the future for us. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Even just like, I know you were saying this like really early in the interview, how somehow like connecting places where people can park and then like a shuttle pick them up to come to school for their job that would be really cool I would definitely be interested in using that and then kind of just to switch gears stop talking about cars I know I'm an RA so I have a couple residents and I know other residents of other buildings have experienced so many bike thefts like some it's like a it's like an industry here I feel like so how can we increase bike security on campus I don't know have you ever attended our lock and learn events no so we have Locomotion, our local nonprofit bike shop, come um, or bike advocacy group, come to campus um, a couple times a year to do like these lock and learns. And the idea is to a get good locks into people's hands, like we'll pay for the cost of the lock, like a really good blue lock. And then you sit through a session on bike safety that also includes like how to properly lock your bike, because um, uh, most of the bike paths are um, coming from improperly locked bikes or an improper lock, like a really skinny cable lock, or so easy to clip. 
mm-hmm. basically anything but a U-lock is really easy to clip and remove. And then if people um, inappropriately lock their bike, like they lock a tire to it or they don't have two point of, points of contact on their bike, they're also very easy to remove, even if it's a U-lock. That's one piece of like the education that we've been trying to do. And then we have bike registration. Hopefully you know about it as an RA. We try to promote that everybody in campus register their bike in the event that there is theft, it can be recovered. And then we're building more bike parking on campus. So we got approved for um, two to build two covered um, bike racks on campus or bike shelters. Um, one will be walled in by Harris Millis, so a more secure one potentially with a camera and a cat card. And then the data center one will just be like a covered backpack. But on our part, we're trying to um, also place the slotted racks um, with the U-racks. The slotted racks are really hard to properly lock your bike to. It's providing U-racks on campus to replace the slotted racks that are easier to tie bikes to, getting education, which is also on our website, how to properly lock your bike. And then getting um, proper locks into the hands of students who we do through the Lock and Learns, but we also work really closely. I'm a co-advisor for UVM Bikes, our co-op on campus, and they bought uh, locks at cost to be able to um, get them into student hands. So you'll see us out there on April 22nd with the U-locks, with the helmets, doing um, demo rides on the new bike share, and then also um, fixing up bikes. So always interested in ideas and recommendations to get to get that messaging out but i do feel like especially um in the past year or two it's bikes have uh, garnered a lot of money i guess for the theft the thieves because we've seen so much and you know really since covid hit in bike fast and resales yeah a lot of the kids that i have talked to have lost their bikes but I don't know how they lock them, obviously. Can you explain what the proper way is to lock your bike? Your your bike should have two points of contact being locked, two points of contact in the frame. So the perfect way to lock your bike is actually have a cable lock and a U-lock. So you wind your cable lock into the back tire because the back tire cannot be popped off because all of your um, gears are, are part of your back tire. So you lock your back tire and then you go through two points in your frame. And then you put the wire cable on your U-lock because otherwise um, they can pop off. They can pop off the, your front tire super easily and take your bike away. And if it's one point of contact, it's if it's a bad lock, it's really easy to cut and move. But the more it's like stuck up in there in your bike, like they, they'll just take a look at it. And if it looks like it's like properly locked, it's not usually worth their time because they usually have to get away pretty quick you know, right. to not like pop. On that, we also have been like, I know the cube, I call it the cube outside on CCRH. Um, has a camera. Mm-hmm. So the new shelter that we'll have outside of the Harris Mills, I believe, will also have a camera. So we've actually got footage of like, people removing bikes. And if they're registered, we have a much better shot of actually getting, recovering and getting it back to people. Would it be possible to have like those covered and locked bike buildings, for lack of better words, on each campus? Like Harris Mills Central has one. You're saying the Davis Center will have one. Like, could we get one on Redstone campus? Yeah, ideally, every campus should have covered and secured bike parking. I mean, that's, that's definitely the goal. But we're trying to tackle in the first round because they're expensive. They're about seventy to $90,000 per. Is making sure the students that don't currently have a bike room have them or have access to one, right? Because like, um, so the next area is Trinity because none of the Trinity dorms have bike rooms. So that everybody, if you don't have a bike room inside your dorm, you at least have a secure, covered place to lock it outside of your bike room, outside of your dorm. How do you think UVM could 
aquaponic accessibility and busing, biking, and walking routes. Like, I know we have the incentive programs and free bus swipes and all that, but do you think, like, we could improve upon either financial accessibility or physical accessibility in any other ways? Well, right now, the nice thing is that um, we cover the cost of the bus uh, trips completely for the, the Vermont-based buses. I'm working with a student who's an eco rep that's really interested in um, reducing the cost of the long transit or long distance transit options. So like the mega bus, the Greyhound, mm-hmm. the Amtrak. So she's seeking like a sustainable campus fund um, award to be able to pilot what that would look like if that would actually get more people onto long distance transit. It's really exciting to see how many students are involved in sustainable transportation, like both through, through sustainable transportation for Bob, but also like eco reps and then just students like in, um, who are taking a couple different classes in campus that deal with transportation. It's nice to see so much being tackled by students. But okay, so for accessibility, I think for me, the biggest thing that um, is missing is really a complete network of um, bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure. So like, an agnostic, so what if it's a bike lane, if it's a bike path, it's if it's a shared use facility, but just to have a continuous network where people don't have to go like in the road, like in and out of dangerous roadways to be able to get places. And same for pedestrian infrastructure, really um, improving crossings and, and the accessibility crossings. Like a couple that come to mind on campus are like East Avenue and Colchester. Yeah. Like how terrible that crossing is for you know people on foot or bike. And then another one is like the jug handle on the other side of East Ave and Main Street, like navigating that, and especially um, students. I hear students often walk from like Redstone Athletic Campus and try to like walk over the bridge to get to the stuff um, on the other side and just navigating that's pretty, can be pretty treacherous. Yeah. So would that, in order to, um, you know, fix that infrastructure, that would come out of UVM funding, I would assume? Yeah, so uh, not necessarily because they're city-owned streets. The city's responsible for the design and maintenance and upkeep of them. Um, in a situation like University Place, where the university is going to lease that city road from them, that would be like a shared cost. But what typically happens is the city applies for grant money to be able to um, do infrastructure improvements. So the university should be at the table to make sure those um, the improvements around the university are prioritized and that they have a say in what those improvements look like. And then the city would go after state or federal funding to be able to pay for the cost of the, those improvements. Gotcha. A couple of the STVT interns, well, two things. One of them, there's like three different interns who are working on the Colchester Ave and East Ave bike lanes. And they're also saying like how unsafe it is just for pedestrians because either the bikers don't want to bike on the road because it's so unsafe. and then they'll revert to the sidewalks and that's unsafe for pedestrians so i think right now they just proposed a bike plan to the city council they have like separated bike lanes by like a green patch and all that so that's really cool that you mentioned that and then oh yeah we have um an stvt club too so i think maybe like if these improvements were ever made to increase accessibility like if that club could somehow collaborate with the university to like get some student voices in there i think that could be really cool too yeah, I think a lot of change happens when it, when student voices come together on an issue. Any way students can um, get involved and get their voices out there, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, for sure. And you talked a little bit about this earlier, but bringing it up, it's always relevant. How has COVID affected the number of students, faculty, and staff taking transportation alternatives, like the CAT bus or CarShare Vermont? Um, what have you seen? I know, I know you said like more students are bringing cars to campus, but stuff like that. Uh, definitely the biggest thing we've seen is more students driving to campus. 
more um, employees teleworking than ever before, less bus ridership, and there's been some messaging that went out early on in COVID that I haven't really seen come back out to say anything different. But the original messaging was like, if you have a different way to get around, don't take the bus, leave the bus for the people who don't have other options so that it's like safe and they're not being turned away because of capacity issues. As we move like towards this like post-vaccine world and you know, where COVID is less abundant, I would hope and think that like the buses would put out different messaging. But yeah, I, I think that so busing's been down. Um, carpooling's been um, pretty stable for those that are coming to work. And I think that's really because these people are like uh, potting together or they're like comfortable enough with the behaviors outside of work that they're like, they're okay continuing to carpool together. Biking has seen a huge increase. Think of, of all the areas on the sustainable side that biking has been the big winner of COVID. Um, people for mental health reasons are like really wanting to get outside and exercise. And um, if you're not going to the office every day, you feel like, okay, biking a couple times a week. And then on the shuttles, they like our UVM shuttles just aren't being used that much. I think we benefit from being on a small campus. So I'd say walking is about the same because it's not really a COVID unsafe practice. Um, biking's increased, busing's down, driving's up. What's something in the near future you would like to see UVM do to increase sustainable transportation and transportation alternatives? Sustainable transportation is easy um, because I'd love to see um, a more robust effort to clean our fleet on campus and get um, encourage employees to, to navigate campus without a vehicle when it's operationally feasible. As far as commuters, um, I just really hope that investment um, continues to, to provide sustainable alternatives that are economically sustainable as well. So right, continuing like the subsidy programs for the for the commute options. And then, like I said, I think the big things are really working with our transit provider to make sure that we get better busing service. And what I mean by that is more frequent, mm-hmm. predictable busing service and better connection um, with parking rides. I think would be two huge um, assets to our efforts. Cool. I'm just still so stuck on how UVM is divested financially, but not operationally from fossil fuels. And I just, I still don't really understand how that can be possible and how we can still claim that we're carbon neutral in commuting business and air travel when we're still purchasing fossil fuels for weeks. So I will say our facilities division has um, recently set sustainability goals by department. So that's like a new initiative for every department to look and see what they can do better to be more sustainable. That being said, nothing in particular has been mandated or passed down from the top. Most of these efforts seem to be coming from the bottom, the bottom up. So I think um, what would be super valuable would be to have something come from the president's office. Like, what are the sustainability goals that he's endorsing and asking his university to participate in? Would have would be very powerful for those of us that are kind of working on the bottom up. Okay, gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, last question. Any final words? Any words of advice? Just that I, again, think that the student voice is so important um, to keep sustainable transportation efforts on top of mind for our administration. So I think it's having podcasts, you know, all the stuff that you guys do is really great. And just to keep it up, and if there's things that you are particularly passionate about in the realm of sustainable transportation, reach out to me. I'm happy to work with you guys and also like help help um, direct you to to those that may um, benefit from hearing your voices. And that, yeah, I'm available. I'm on campus. Um, if you ever have any questions or 
um, projects in mind, definitely reach out to me. Okay, so once again, y'all just heard from Abby, the Sustainable Transportation Coordinator at UVM. I will link her email in this post. I will link all the places on the Transportation Parking Service website that pertains to sustainable transportation, like the bike share program, as well as the carpool, car share program. So definitely check those out and reach out to Abby if you have any ideas on how to increase sustainable transportation at UVM. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Like I said before we started, I learned so much from Abby, so thank you again, Abby, for coming on and talking with me. Next episode, it will be Rachel and I again, and we interviewed a lady named Alexis Latham, who did work with the Inu tribe in Labrador, Canada, and we talk about hydropower, hydro-Quebec, and just the really harmful impacts that hydropower has on indigenous people and on the environment that many people may not know about, so super stoked for y'all to hear that one. Thanks for listening, and I will see you on the next one. Thank you.